chapter 3. Today we're going to finish up the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches that Christ gives John in his vision in Revelation chapter 3. So we're at the end of Revelation chapter 3 now. We're going to be reading about the church of Laodicea, the last of the seven churches, as I just mentioned. The worst of the seven churches as well. And uh, Christ's message is quite stark and direct. But we're going to start in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3, and then we'll read through the end of the chapter. So the Bible says in Revelation 3, starting in verse 14, Unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works that thou art neither hot, cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Let's take a minute and pray. Father, again, we come before you in your word, and we open your word knowing that it's truth, and yet sometimes in our minds we admit that, but in our lives we don't. So, Lord, as your word goes forth today, may it have power to change us, to challenge us, and to convict us. Lord, we need the conviction of your word, and we need the truth to guide us in our lives. So just open our minds today. Help us to understand. Lord, let your spirit do his work in us. Help us not to be fighting against him, but to submit ourselves to his will. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to to use your word to help us to understand life, the things that you've called us to. And so as I proclaim this, Lord, you know I'm weak. You know I'm limited in wisdom, and so I need your help. I need your strength. I need your spirit to give me the words to say. Just fill me with your spirit. May you be glorified. May your work be proclaimed, and may your, your word be proclaimed, and may your work be done now. And we'll give you the glory and honor for this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, we're coming back to finish up the last of the letters to the seven churches. This is the the last of the the letters, uh, Laodicea. It's also the worst of the churches that we've looked at. It's written by Christ. And I want you to understand this, and you'll see this, but it's written by Christ to an unregenerate church. And you say, well, how could that be? How can a church be unregenerate? It's a visible church. It's a gathering of people claiming to be part of God's church. And so it's a physical representation. 
But as Christ looks at them, and you'll see this in this passage, Christ finds no true life. Now, you may say, well, we just saw that in Sardis. They were the dead church. They were. And yet in Sardis, Christ says, but there's still a few of you, there's still a few among you, even in Sardis, who hold to my name, who have true life. Here, there's no one. It's a completely unregenerate church. A bunch of people who call themselves Christians who are not meeting and doing what they call worship that's not And Christ rebukes him for it, and he challenges him for it. So before we get into the church, I want to give you, like we always do, some background of the city, because especially in this case, you're going to see some direct uh, relevance and correlation between what happens in this city and what the city is known for and how Christ addresses them. So the city of Laodicea was founded sometime before 253 B.C. by Antiochus II. We know that because in 253 B.C., uh, he divorced his wife. And you say, well, what's that got to do with the city? The city's named after his wife. All right, so he founded the city, named it after his wife, and then sometime later divorced her. That's what we know. It was one of three sister cities. There was Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. They were all very close together. Colossae was about 10 miles away. Hierapolis was about 6 miles away. And in fact, Colossians 4.16, you can read in scripture where Paul instructs that the letter he wrote to the Colossians, the book we have as Colossians, should be read to this church in Laodicea. They needed to hear it. So they were very closely related in location, but they also knew each other well. And they had some of the same problems. Now, we don't have a letter from Paul to Laodicea. We have this letter from Christ to Laodicea. So we know this church existed. We just don't know that much about it. Some more about the city. It was located about 40 miles south of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. We saw Philadelphia last week, a city that was faithful. They persevered. Uh, They continued to name the name of Christ, even through the midst of all of that. And this city, uh, uh, Laodicea, was about 40 miles from there. This is the end of the postal route, actually. It starts at Ephesus, curves up around through Smyrna and Pergamos and then Thyatira and then to, uh, to uh, uh, um, just forgot it, Sardis and then Philadelphia and now finally at here at, at Laodicea. Okay, so that's what we know about the city. Interesting background about the city as far as its structure and some of the things that it was famous for. It was, like the other cities that we've talked about, pretty well defensed. It sat up on a plateau several hundred feet up above the surrounding area. And so it was hard to conquer. But that location also made it very difficult to bring water into the city. There were no natural streams or springs that were right there. And so what they did was they built an aqueduct to bring water into the city. It was underground. They did it underground so that their enemies couldn't destroy the aqueduct and cut off the water supply to the city. And some historians have alluded to the fact that parts of this aqueduct, it had several branches, but parts of it were about five miles long. So we were bringing water in from almost five miles away. Now that was good in that they had city uh, water into the city, but it was bad in that the water they were bringing in was polluted. It was contaminated, had a lot of sediment and other uh, impurities in it. And so as the water flowed through this aqueduct, it would deposit these impurities inside these terracotta pipes. 
And therefore, all the water that flowed over these pipes would pick up these impurities. And by the time the water got into the city, it was nasty. But it was water, and so they used it. And many people were sick. Now, the fact that many people were, in, were sick in this city also inspired them. And actually, one of the temples of the gods there, they started a medical school and developed an eye salve that was famous throughout the Roman Empire, was exported all throughout the Roman Empire. Some uh, scholars think the, eye, the, the uh, prominence of eye problems may have been related to the impure water. Uh, they don't know. But anyway, they had developed this eye salve. Um, so they have this water. They have a polluted uh, source of water. Um, but it's also a very wealthy center, center of commerce because it sits right at a, a major intersection of a highway that runs east-west and north and south. Two highways intersect. That city sits right in the middle of it. So it became a major center of commerce and a very strategic banking center. Um, there were a lot of banking uh, strategies and, and uh, revolutions that were accomplished here in the city of Laodicea, which also made it very rich. It was the, probably one of the richest of all the cities that we've seen. Even though it wasn't the biggest, it was the richest. In fact, we've talked about some of these cities being destroyed by earthquakes. And in 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed many of these cities that we've already discussed. Rome came in and helped these cities rebuild. In fact, we've seen in several of them where they um, set up a temple to Tiberius, the emperor, because of his help in rebuilding the city. Laodicea was so rich, they basically told Rome, we don't need your help, we've got enough money to rebuild ourselves, and they did. They didn't need outside help, so they had that much affluence and prosperity in the city. It's also known that there was a large population of very wealthy Jews who lived there. And um, it just goes toward, again, we've seen in two of the cities, Christ talking about the synagogue of Satan and how the Jews persecuted the church. We have the same situation here in Laodicea. I've already mentioned the medical center and the eye salve. So that's the background that we have of the city of Laodicea. Now, as far as the church is concerned in this city, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us much about it. In Colossians, as I just mentioned, it tells that Paul says that the, the letter to Colossae should be read in the church at Laodicea, and likewise, the letter to Laodicea should be read in Colossae. Paul never was there personally that we know of. Um, his co-laborer, Epaphras, founded the nearby church at Colossae. Again, that was a sister city, so it's very possible that Epaphras had a very large influence in helping this church to get founded and, and continue on in its history. But that's all we know. There's nothing else we really know about this church of Laodicea, except what Christ writes here. And so that's what we're going to focus on. But I gave you the background, and I gave you a little bit of history about the city, because all of that comes into play when you look at this letter that Christ wrote. And we're going to see that. So first, we have this introduction of Christ to this church at Laodicea. And as in the letter to Philadelphia, here we have an introduction that actually does not quote or draw from directly any of the statements in chapter 1 of the vision of the glorified Christ. Christ introduces himself here using three divine titles, and all of them are reference to his deity, and there's an importance to that that we'll see. 
So first he says in, uh, in verse 14, he introduces himself, he says, um, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He starts with this title, the Amen. And in this title, he re- makes reference to Isaiah 65, 16. And in that verse, twice, Christ or, or God is referred to as the God of truth. That's what the word amen means. It means of a truth. We say prayers, and we, at the end, we say amen. Basically, what we're saying is, so be it. Or, verily, verily, it is true. What I've said, what I've asked for, this is the true uh, expression of my heart. And it is true that God hears us and can answer those prayers. And that's why we say, amen. These things are true. Sometimes in church, somebody will hear something that really impresses them. They'll say, amen. You've probably heard that in places. But in the scripture, uh, the Bible uses this word, amen, to verify that what's been said is absolutely true. Give me, I'll give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 36 It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. They were agreeing. They were saying, So be it. Yes, this is true, that God is blessed, and he should be our God forever and ever. In Psalm 72, verse 19, the psalmist says, And blessed be his glorious name forever. Again, you hear that phrase repeated. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. That is the purpose. For, what God, for, for why God put us on this earth is to, for him to show his glory through us. The earth is not just a habitation place for us. It is to demonstrate the glory of God. Psalm 19 tells us that about the stars, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. So it's all about his glory. And in the end of that Psalm 72 verse 19, the psalmist says, Amen and amen. Absolutely it is true. In Romans chapter 16, we go to the New Testament, and Paul writes, To the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And he closes that book with that phrase, Amen. You see that through a lot of the New Testament epistles. They're closed with this idea, or this word, Amen. And it's basically saying, yes, it is true. In the uh, Gospels, especially in the book of John, we're studying John in Sunday school, but you see when Christ talks about something, he wants to impress people of the truth of something, he'll start by saying, verily, verily. And John records this several times in the Gospel of John. That's the same thing. Christ is saying, it is true, now listen. So that's the, the truth of amen. And so when Christ refers to himself as the amen, he's not just saying, I am amen. He says, I am the amen, the absolute truth of God. And the truth of God is embodied in him. It's just not that he is true, but that he is the truth. He represents the truth in his person and character. And he needs to say that for this church. In him, all the promises of God are fulfilled and guaranteed. In him, the very essence of God is fulfilled and personified. And truth is the standard of that. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul writes, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. See, Jesus Christ is the guarantee that everything God said is true. Now, we can just look at God and in his nature, because he is God, we, we just assume 
and we automatically accept that everything he says is going to be true. Jesus Christ is the guarantee of that. He is the personification of that. And so that's why he introduces himself by saying at first, I am the amen. In the second phrase, he says, the faithful and true witness. And this title explains or elucidates a little bit more on the first title. First, he says, I am the amen. Then he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. So it's not only his person and his work that embody the the truth of God, but Jesus Christ is absolutely true in everything he says. The word of God is true. Now, in John 1, as we're studying in Sunday school, uh, it begins by talking about Jesus Christ as the Word. The Word was made flesh, talking about him coming to earth as a man. It says, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the Word, but all of his words are true. Everything he says about someone, about something, is absolutely true. He says that he testifies about the Father in his ministry. And so we know everything Jesus said about the Father is absolutely true. So that everything Christ testifies of God is true, and everything Christ testifies about man to God is true. And therefore, everything he tells us about ourselves is true as well. We have to accept that, because he is truth. And this is an appropriate way for Christ to introduce himself, considering what he's about to say to the church. Okay? I want you to understand that, because when you see the message, you're going to understand why he had to verify his truthfulness, his his absolute um, veracity in what he's going to say. The third title he uses is the beginning of the creation of God. This phrase is used by some, and they point to this, to try to prove that Jesus is not really God. He was a created being. Because they say, look, it says he's the beginning of the creation. That means God created him. The problem is they misinterpret the word beginning. The word beginning in the Greek is the word arche. It means chief or top in the rank of, first in rank. And it actually, in used in this verse, does not say he's the first object of creation. He is the source of creation. He is the chief one in the creative process. That's what he's saying here. I am the RK, the chief one, the organizer, the source of all creation. And so here he basically states very clearly that he is God. Now this agrees with John chapter 1, again, verse 3, that says all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Talking about Christ. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John 1 says, in the beginning, the word created everything that was. Jesus is God. He is as much the creator as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so he's establishing his divinity here with these people and saying, I am absolute truth because I am God. And you must Listen to my message. It is a true message, and it's a true description of what you really are. And that's important for us. Because if we don't accept God's truth the way he wanted these people to accept God's truth, then we're in a sorry state, and we're in trouble. We must accept God's word and the word of God as absolute. 
And his assessment of us is absolutely true. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16, Paul verifies this. He says, who is the image, talking about Christ, who is it the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? There's that phrase that's similar to what Christ was saying. For by him are all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Jesus Christ is God. He's established his God. In, in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, when Paul calls him the firstborn of every creation or every creature, again, it's not talking about him being the firstborn, somebody who is born or created. The word there is prototokos. It means the preeminent one or the one who receives the highest honor. He is the beginning of creation, the source of creation. Everything comes out of him. And that's why in Philippians 2, Paul writes this, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, what's the word? Lord, Master, to the glory of God the Father. So in these three titles, Jesus is making it very clear and making very sure that they know who is speaking, and that what he's about to say, there is no untruth, no uh, second opinions even. This is their true condition. Now remember, in chapter 1, I said this, in order for us to worship Christ correctly, we must have the correct vision of Christ. Yes, he is our shepherd. Yes, he was a servant on earth. He provided a great example for us. But he is the glorified Savior with all authority, all power, who has all judgment in his hand. That's the picture we see in chapter 1. That's what's missing in this church. And that's why they're so messed up. Okay? So we see that as Christ begins his condemnation. Now, what's missing in this This is the only church there is no commendation. There's nothing good. He says nothing good about this church. He starts the same as he started the other uh, churches. In in verse 15, he says, I know thy works. In other words, the all-seeing, piercing eyes, remember those blazing eyes in the vision of Christ? They pierce through everything. Nothing can be hidden from him. I know your works. He says, I see what you are. It's not the outward actions that can deceive me into seeing something other than what you are. He says, I know you. I know your works. And then look how he describes them. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and I'm going to spit you out. Now, the word spew there literally means vomit, okay? It means to vomit out of his mouth. That's what Christ is saying. Now, we have this picture, and you probably all have experienced drinking something that, some water that maybe isn't the best tasting, and then it's not cold or hot, it's just kind of lukewarm, and, you, and you're like, ugh. Okay, I'm going to 
relate to you probably one of the worst memories of my childhood. When I was sick as a young kid, my mother gave me, I have no idea what it was, okay? It was supposed to make you vomit. It was to break up congestion. I don't know, but it was to make you vomit out whatever was making you sick. But I remember it was lukewarm. It tasted nasty, and it did the job, okay? I didn't like it. It was disgusting. And that's exactly how Jesus is describing this church. It is so disgusting that it makes him sick, literally. Now, when Jesus says he will vomit something out of his mouth, it's not something that he wants to be a part of. And he's not a part of it. It is something that is totally opposite of his character and of his nature, that it has to be removed from his presence. And that's why I say when we look at this church, what Jesus is describing is a completely unregenerate church, a church full of people who are not saved and who do not know the true Christ. Now, unfortunately, what he describes is a perfect definition of many churches and of Christianity in America today. Because we have a lot of people who call themselves Christians, a lot of, of churches who think they're real churches, and based on this description, Christ is going to spew them out of his mouth. Now, I want to look at this phrase, hot or cold, because there's two ways you can look at this. And I'm going to relate it to what we see in, the, the, in Laodicea and the surrounding area. Remember, Christ is, is giving them examples of, of, and using examples of things that they're familiar with. So he's using their experience to try to explain to them how bad they really are. The first way to look at this is this. In that area, there were hot mineral springs, almost like if you go out to Yosemite and you see these pools of real hot water, mineral water. And some people just go and they sit and they relax and they soak in them. They had the same thing here in this area. Around Hierapolis, there were many of those springs. And so the people would go, and, and they were medically good. They were ref, uh, uh, a healing balm to the people. They were rejuvenating. So they would go to these hot springs for their healing properties. Also in Colossae, another sister city, there were very cold, pure springs and streams that came out of the mountain, and those had some of the best water available. Now remember, that's probably where, they, where Laodicea got some of its water, but by the time they piped it through those pipelines that were already contaminated, by the time it got to the city, it wasn't useful anymore. But this cold water, these cold springs in Colossae were very refreshing and rejuvenating. People would go there specifically for the water. And Christ is saying, I want you to look around you. You have these hot springs that have healing properties for people. You have this cold water that is refreshing and rejuvenating. You're like the water that's coming into your city through these corrupted pipes. By the time it gets to you, it's lukewarm and it's not good for anything. And that's why he says you're neither cold nor hot. And it's not that he wants them to be absolute against God. That's not what he's saying here. But lukewarm is the worst situation that a person could be in. And I'm going to explain that by using this second reference or a second explanation of this cold or hot. Spiritually hot people are those that are alive and on fire for the Lord. 
We understand that. When you hear this phrase, spiritually on fire, spiritually hot for the Lord, okay, we think of people who are just like all in. They are all about the God. Their whole lives are defined by glorifying and praising God. Everything about them. And there's just something about those people who go, wow, they are on fire for God. And then you have cold people. The absolutely cold people or spiritually cold people are those who couldn't care less about God. These are absolutely unsafe people. Now, they'll admit they're unsaved. They'll admit they're against God. They'll admit they're against everything that has to do with God. They have no interest in serving him. They don't want anything to do with God or the church. And they have no reason to go into a church in the first place. And we probably all know people like that. So God would define them as spiritually cold. And they're better off, actually, than lukewarm. And here's the reason. Because lukewarm people are the ones in the worst condition. They're the ones in church. They are the ones who are there. They claim to be saved, and yet they really don't know Christ. And so it's not that they're against God outwardly. They're deceived into thinking they're Christian and they're part of the church when actually they're not. They're unsaved people acting like Christians, performing the deeds, hoping that all of their goodness is going to get them to heaven. And these are the hardest people to reach with the gospel because they think they're okay. And if their lives are not on fire for the Lord, they really don't care about God in the long run. All they care about are the benefits that I get from Christianity, and hopefully it'll cash my ticket to heaven. That's all that matters. The ministry of the gospel is not important. Helping and encouraging people in the word of God is not important. What's important is I show up on Sunday, I do my duty during the rest of the week, and I get to enjoy my life after that. It's all about me. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul describes these kinds of people as having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. They have no power of the Holy Spirit because their Holy Spirit's not in them. And their godliness is an outward godliness, but inwards, they're the same old sinner. And I would call them modern-day Christian Pharisees, because the Pharisees are a great example of these kinds of people. They perform well. They present themselves as very religious people. And remember what Christ said about the Pharisees? He called them serpents. He said, you're dead men. You're the blind leading the blind. You're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They were outwardly religious, inwardly completely sinful. Christ uh, criticized them for washing the outward and forgetting about the inside. And that's what these lukewarm Christians are. They live one way outwardly in church and forget about Christ the rest of the week. And so we call them hypocrites. And that's truly what they are. And hypocrites, religious hypocrites, are the biggest group that is the hardest to win because they think they're spiritually okay. Now remember, Jesus is saying this. I'm not. I'm not giving you my opinion. This is what Jesus is saying about this church. He knows who's saved and who's not. And he's saying, 
Here's a church that's completely filled with unsaved people because this is the character of them. And again, they're the hardest to reach because they think they're okay, because their self-righteousness gets in the way of understanding the true depravity of their nature. They think they're okay. A true Christian realizes that we're not okay. We're still sinners. Every day we fail God, and every day we need to go back to God in repentance and confession, claiming the blood of Christ on those sins. We're not okay. That's the substance of what a Christian believes. And if you believe you're okay, you're not a Christian. That's what Christ is saying. These are people who may have grown up in a church, may have grown up in a Christian family, heard the Bible left and right, gone to Christian schools, been in all the Christian circles, read the Christian magazines, listen to Christian music. But God is not in them. They know the Bible backwards and forwards, just like the Pharisees, but it never gets past their pride to actually convict them of their sin. And that's why they're so hard to win. That's why they're so hard to convict and convince that they're still sinners. They're self-deceived by their own knowledge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul addresses the Corinthians about the idea of spiritual liberty, spiritual freedom in Christ. And he starts by saying, and this is the meat offered to idols passage, but he starts that passage by saying, we all know there's nothing wrong with meat. You keep saying you know that, and so it doesn't matter whether you eat it or not. But he says, that knowledge, guess what that does? Knowledge puffeth up. If all you have is Bible knowledge about what's right and what's wrong, and it never changes you and convicts you, then what results is pride. Because knowledge doesn't help. All it does is make us proud of what we know. And Paul says, knowledge puffeth up. And here's the truth, knowledge doesn't save you. There are a lot of people who know the plan of salvation. They could tell someone the plan of salvation. In fact, they could actually give the plan of salvation so somebody else gets saved, but they're not saved themselves. And I've known people like this personally. Knowledge puffeth up. Spiritual knowledge makes us proud, and it makes us lukewarm, pseudo-Christians. James chapter 4, verse 6 tells us God resists the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. The humble are the ones who are truly saved. If we're proud in our knowledge, if we're proud in our righteous lifestyle, if we're a modern-day Pharisee and how we live and present ourselves to people, and yet the Holy Spirit has never changed us inside and is not continuing to change us to make us into the image of Christ, then we fit this category of lukewarm Christian. We're not Christian. We're a lukewarm person claiming Christianity but not having it. I want to take you back to Matthew 5 for just a second. Okay, we read that in our responsive reading. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5 very quickly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I have a long way to go. We don't have as much time left. So Matthew chapter 5. This is what we know as the Beatitudes. This is Christ's first sermon recorded in Scripture, and he gives us this list of blessed are those. Okay? 
Now, what he's actually telling us is not how we're supposed to be happy. This is not, well, here's how you're supposed to live your life. Most people will look at this and say, well, this is how Christ wants us to live our life. This is kind of a guideline for us to follow. No, what Christ is describing here is the progression of the heart and nature of a person who is truly saved. Now, I want, to, I want you to see this. He starts in verse 3, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That means, blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy. There's nothing good in them. That means, I am totally depraved. You have to admit that. And if you can't ever get to that point where I'm totally depraved, there's nothing good in me, and there's nothing I can do to make myself good enough before God, you will never be blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He starts by saying we must recognize that we're totally worthless. Then in verse 4, blessed are those that mourn. Those who realize their sinfulness. See, you have to get there first. And then become sorrowful for their sin. That's that sorrow that leads to repentance. Blessed are those who mourn. They sorrow over sin. Number five, verse five, blessed are the meek. What's meekness equated with? Humility. You have to be humble or it's not true salvation. Because unless we humble ourselves and submit ourselves under the authority of God, he can't do his work in us. Humility and meekness is a hallmark of Christianity. Blessed are the meek. We must humble ourselves before God in confession and repentance. Then verse 6, blessed are those which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Here is the character of the new nature. We no longer desire the same old things. We no longer desire the world. Our hunger and our thirst are for God. Our desires change. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. We have a desire a hunger and thirst after righteousness. We desire to know God's truth and not just to know it, but to live it for it to change us, to define us. Now, verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Those who are truly saved will always be willing to forgive, to extend mercy. We don't hold grudges. We don't go around reminding people of all their sins and all the wrongs they committed against us. We pray that in the prayer every week. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. And if we don't forgive others, Christ says, your trespasses will not be forgiven you. So he makes it very clear. Christians are merciful. Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Now, it's not a pureness outwardly. Remember, that's cleaning the outside, but not the inside. He says, those Christians, those who are truly blessed, are those who are right inwardly. Your motives your intentions are right. They're pure before God. And then he says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who create peace by exalting the character of God in their lives and by bringing other people to God to find peace there. See, there's the gospel. Christ was the prince of what? Peace, because he made a way for us to be reconciled with God. Christians do not treat sinners with contempt. We treat them with love because that's how God sees them. Verse 10 and 11, 
he closes out this description. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for my name's sake. Now, here is a direct contradiction to the church at Laodicea and to the American church today. We don't want persecution. We want comfort, ease, peace in our life. Not the inward peace. We want the outward peace. We want all the good things that salvation and God can give us. And after we live our comfortable life on this earth, then hopefully we'll have a comfortable life in heaven. 10, 11, in Matthew 5, Christ says, No, your life is going to be defined by persecution, men making fun of you, men reviling you, and you may lose your life for my name. And then look at verse 12, the response. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For being persecuted, for being made fun of, for being exiled, for being killed. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. We're not looking for the stuff here. We're looking for what we get to come. See, that's the definition of a Christian. And Christ makes it very clear in Matthew 5 when he says that. That's what a true believer is. That's what they look like. That's what their lives are. So when he says you're lukewarm... These are people who are smug, self-righteous hypocrites who think they're good enough and that their religion, no matter how they live it out, makes them something special. You know, I've, I've heard this phrase, and I don't quite agree with it. People say, well, Christians, are, or Christians think that they're better than everyone else, and we're not better, we're just better off. I don't even like that, okay? We're forgiven by the blood of Christ, We're promised a future in heaven, and we're given a ministry on this earth. But honestly, in this earth, physically, we're not really better off. We have the Holy Spirit. That's what gives us hope. So if you want to, I guess, define it that way, yeah, we're better off in that we have hope for the future because we know this life isn't all there is. And we want to help as many people get to the future as possible. Because that's where the real hope is. Lukewarm people look down on others, criticize, condemn them for not meeting up to their own standards. We talk about legalism. This is where it comes from. People who call themselves Christians who are not. They set standards for everybody else and then condemn and criticize them. And half the time, the people have no idea that the standard even existed until they tell them that you broke it, right? I mean, how many of us have been subject to that? You're condemning me. I didn't even know that was supposed to be that way. And especially for new Christians, I mean, I grew up in churches and circles like this, and I saw it happen. And unfortunately, this kind of church will shoot its wounded because it damages their reputation. The Bible says we're supposed to restore each other in love. A lukewarm church is all about themselves. And so Christ says, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. It's a total rejection by Christ, so they can't be saved. Verse 17, in Revelation 3, he goes on, he says, Because thou sayest I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The people in this church thought that because the church reflected the outward prosperity of the city, 
That was God's blessing in their lives. Now, that's nothing more than the result of a prosperity gospel, okay? And that is a false gospel, folks. If people will tell you, well, because you're saved, God wants you to be comfortable. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy. That is the message of the prosperity gospel. It is a false gospel. We just saw Christ define Christianity as those who are persecuted, those who are reviled by the world. If we're friends with Christ, we are enemies of the world. If we're friends with the world, we will be enemies of God, the Bible tells us. And here he says, here's your condition. Here's what you claim. You say, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, and I have need of nothing. Now, I don't know what phrase in the Bible describes the American church more than that right there. We are rich. We are increased with goods. And we have need of nothing. Not even God. I got it, God. I'm good. Have a good day. And that's why we never go to him. That's why our prayer life suffers so much. If we do it at all. I have everything I need. I know enough Bible. I go to church every week. I'm good. I don't need anything else. And so the church reflects this outward prosperity, and the people looked at that and said, hey, we're good. God's blessing us. Look at all the money we got. Look at all the people that are coming. God's blessing us. But Christ says all that does is make them blind to their true spiritual condition. Good health, wealth, earthly prosperity, comfort, those are not signs that you are all right with God. That is not necessarily God's blessing. It may be the results of human effort to accumulate wealth. Look how many unsaved people there are that are millionaires and billionaires in this world. That doesn't mean God blessed them. It means God allowed them to accumulate the wealth, the riches of this world, because they weren't seeking the riches of Christ. And it's funny, when you look at that list, health, wealth, friends, status, all that prosperity stuff, those are the things the world seeks anyway. And as a Christian, I thought we were supposed to be new creatures, new desires, new wants, new goals. So why are we still looking for all the stuff the world looks for? And why would God just reward us with all the stuff the world wants in the first place? That's not where spiritual wealth is found. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And we've given into the lie that it's enough to go to church, to learn the Bible, to live a good life, and to keep to myself while ignoring all the people that we've offended with our lack of care because they're too hard to deal with and we don't want conflict or confrontation to disturb our peaceful lives. That's a lukewarm Christian. I have a hard truth for you. The gospel creates conflict. The gospel is confrontational. God's word is confrontational. It's a sword that pierces. It hurts to hear the truth. Proverbs tells us the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And I think too many Christians are looking for the kisses of the enemy than to be wounded by the word of God and have the surgery done that needs to take place. 
gospel, the gospel creates conflict. When you confront a sinning person in love with the truth that they're living in sin, there will be conflict. You can't avoid it. But the conflict will be one of two things. Either they won't accept it, they'll fight against the truth of God, reject it, and then shoot the messenger, in which you'll be the one persecuted. Or the conflict will be internally for them, and they'll have to submit to the truth of God in their lives and repent. And then peace comes. But the gospel creates conflict. But we're too lazy and comfortable to try to win people for Christ. And we're too lazy and comfortable to try to uh, fix relationships in true Christian love because we don't want to rock the boat in our lives. We don't want to create conflict or confrontation. We want to be comfortable. If you don't love people enough to try to help them rather than just condemn them like the Pharisees did, then you are one of them. That's what Christ says. You're a Pharisee. Pharisees did not go to heaven. You will not see many of them there because they were great religious figures in society. Christ said they were lifeless shells. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Again, a hallmark of true Christianity. We love other people, regardless of their condition, regardless of how they treat us. We act and live in love toward them because that's how God treats them. The worst sinner on this earth, Christ came to die for. And we can't take three minutes to give them a track and encourage them with the truth of God. And if that defines you, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And then he goes on, he says, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. You're not saved. Now, you've heard this message, and it seems like it's repeated in some of these churches over and over about fake Christianity. And it's like, you know, I, I told my wife the other day, I feel like sometimes I'm preaching the same message all through the book of Revelation. That's the message. That's the message of the whole Bible. And the message is most important to those people who are lost, especially those people who think they're on their way to heaven and are not. And that's why Christ is trying to press this issue. So if we don't love the brethren, and if that defines you, that means you're not saved. That's what the Bible says. That's not my assessment. I'm not saying that. That's what God says about you. Remember, that's why Christ said, I am God, I am always truth, and what I say is the truth. And so here is the truth about you. And he tells this church, you're not saved. In Proverbs 14.4, this is one of my favorite Proverbs. It says, where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Okay, if you are, and I want you to picture this, okay? Think about your house. Well, maybe some of you don't want to think about your house right now, okay? It's probably not in the best condition of company or whatever. All right, but think of your house in the best pristine condition it can be, okay? And that's your goal. I would love to have that all the time. Maintain that. And then I come to you and say, hey, you know, I've got a pet ox. I know you don't have a barn, but would you let him just stay in your living room for a few hours? Any volunteers? Okay, obviously not. We're like, ah, bring him in my living room? What are you, crazy? 
Imagine the state of your living room after a few hours with an ox living there. The proverb says, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. The crib is the feeding trough. In other words, if you want to keep your life peaceful and not messy and perfect, then don't ever deal with people. You know, one pastor put it this way, my ministry, my church would be perfect if it weren't for all those people in it. The point is, God has brought us to this earth. God has saved us for the purpose of working and ministering to messy people. And if we're not willing to let our lives get a little messed up and have some inconvenience and discomfort in our lives, then all we care about is ourselves. And John says, you abide in death. There's no life there. And Christ goes on at the end of that, and he says, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They're wretched sinners, but they will not admit it. They think they're good. They are miserable in their lives because although they may have comfort and prosperity, they lack Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. They're miserable people. I tell people the most miserable people I've ever met are people who have so much of God they can't be happy with the world and they have so much of the world they can't be happy with God and they want everything on both sides and they get nothing of either. You can't have it that way. You're either all on God's side and take what he has to offer us or you're all in the world and take whatever that has to offer us. You can't have both. He says, you're miserable. And then he says, you're poor. They've accumulated earthly riches and have missed the heavenly riches. Remember how rich this city was? The church was probably overflowing with money as well. Christ says, you're poor. You have nothing. You don't even realize it. And then he says, you're blind. They, they, They think physically, oh, you know, we have this great medical center. We're famous for our eye salve to help people see. And Christ says, you're blind. And then he says, you're also naked. Now, one thing I didn't tell you about this city is that one of the products that they were famous for was black wool. It was a very fine black wool. They used to make very expensive clothes and carpets with it, and it was exported throughout the entire region. They were proud of that black wool, and you could distinguish somebody from this area because of their black clothing. And Christ says, you're naked. doesn't matter how nice your clothes are, you're naked. Look at his command in verse 18. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that thy shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thy eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Christ is saying all the things that they were counting on as substance for their spiritual life was fake. There's no value in any of this because they were looking at the church and equating it to the world. As long as the world prospered and we look like the world, then we're doing well. And he says, no, you have nothing. He says, buy buy gold of me, pure gold, tried in the fire. Now that's a reference to 1 Peter 1.7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ is much more valuable than any gold that we could ever accumulate on this earth. And your faith will be tried by fire. Because then you know it's genuine faith. 
if it perseveres. We've seen that all through these messages. He says, so buy gold of me. Put your faith in me. And it's, he's saying, buy gold of me, but again, a reference to Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2, because the prophet Isaiah says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So what Christ is offering them is not even going to cost them anything except submission and conviction and faith and confession of their sin. And he says, Buy white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness do not appear. What is black the symbol of spiritually? Sin. They were proud to be covered in their sin. Christ says, you need white raiment. White raiment is what I give to those who trust me. And then he says, anoint thine eyes with eye salve that they may see. Not the medical stuff from the medical center that you have, but the truth of the word of God. Put it in here. Put it here. Let that clear your vision. Because the physical stuff is not going to help you at all. And then in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, this phrase is not the same as whom he loves, he corrects. Okay? The context is a little different. When he says, as many as I love, what does John 3.16 tell us about who God loves? Say it with me. For God so loved the world. So who does God love? Everyone. Even unsaved churches. And he says... I love you, and I rebuke and chasten you. The word rebuke here is the Greek word elenko. It means to confront or convict. It's the same word used in John 16, 8, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, when he is come, he will reprove. That's the word elenko. It means reprove, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Whom Christ loves the world, he convicts of sin. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't care if we were going to hell. And then the word chasten there means educate or instruct. He's trying to tell them the truth about their condition. Because he loves them. And he says that they need to repent and they need to do it quickly and sincerely. And this repentance is not just an apology that they make outwardly that never yields any change in their behavior or in their inward parts. This is a sorrowful breaking of the will and submitting to God to fix the problem in us. That's what we read in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt, those who mourn sorrow for sin, and that brings repentance. And here he says you need to repent. A heartfelt confession of our own utter worthlessness and our absolute need for Christ to change us because he's the only one that can fix it. And and repentance is not just conforming to some standard that I read in the Bible and making my life better. Repentance is realizing that I can't do it myself and I have to rely on Christ and the Holy Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it like this. Repentance means you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound, 
It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, and that you turn your back on it on every shape and form. That's repentance. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world in its mind as well as in its practice, and you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. That's repentance that Christ is talking about here. And then I want you to look at verse 20. You probably have heard this so many times. Verse 20, this is Christ saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Christ is standing at the door of the church at Laodicea because he's on the outside. He's not present in there because nobody there is in Christ. So he says to the church, I'm outside the church and I'm knocking on the door. And if any man will hear my voice and open the door and let me in, I will come in. See, all it takes is one person. Remember the church at Sardis, a dead church, and yet there were still a few who were alive, and Christ was there. Here, there's nobody. And he's beckoning this church to open the door to him, to accept true salvation in him. He's patiently knocking and waiting for them to pay attention, to acknowledge the lack of his presence inside and to open the door for him. And unfortunately, the Christian who fits this description is the same way. Christ is outside of your life. You may think you're nearby. You may think that he visits once in a while when you come to church, when you read the Bible, when you pray, I let Christ in for a little while. But he's not the master of the house. And if all you do is let Christ come in and visit once in a while, that's not Christianity. If Christ is not ruling your heart, that's what defines you as a lukewarm pseudo-Christian. You're not saved. There's no real Christianity present because there's no Holy Spirit in you. There's no Jesus Christ. There's no real fruit because there's no real life. We read that in 1 John 3. If we don't love our brother... We abide in death. And we can fake all we want, but nothing will make us any better before God. But Jesus says all we have to do is open the door. Open the door to let him come in, rearrange the house, do all of the work that he wants to do to renovate our life, get rid of anything that needs to be gotten rid of, and for him to become the master, and us the servant, and then everything changes after that. And Jesus says to those who will do that, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. The word sup means to dine, it means fellowship. He wants to fellowship with us, but we can't have fellowship with God if he's not in control. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It means even our prayers are a waste of time. If sin is there and Christ is not. Christ wants our fellowship, but it can never happen on our terms. It must be on his. We have to let him call the shots. We have to let him be in control. We have to give up all and take up our cross and follow Christ. Otherwise, we will be lukewarm, unsaved, Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, 
and naked. That's Christ's description, not mine. Look at his promise very quickly as we close. He says, those who overcome, in verse 21, to those who overcome, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Remember, the overcomers, we've seen them in every church. Those are the ones who are truly saved. Those are the ones who persevere. Those are the ones who repent truly and give their lives to Christ. And Christ will seat those believers on his throne that he shares with his Father in heaven. Those will be the ones who will rule with Christ in his kingdom. Where's everybody else? Well, we'll be there. We just won't be ruling. No. Anybody else won't be there. Okay, that's clear. And we're going to see that as we study through Revelation. You're either with Christ on his throne or you're not there. That's the way it works. Jesus defined this church as a lukewarm church. Nobody was saved inside. I wonder how he would define this church. Now, I don't know if he would have this conviction or this condemnation for our church. I believe that we have many people who are saved as part of this church. I see fruit. But again, I can't make that assessment. I can only go by what I see. What is Christ's assessment of our church? What is Christ's assessment of your life? The true assessment. Are you truly hot for Jesus Christ? Do you have a passionate concern for others as Christ did? Or are you rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing? Have you become unteachable because you think you have it all figured out, that you're good enough in your current state? You do enough that God is happy with you. I'm going to share a quick story very, before we close. I had an aunt, um, one of our favorite aunts. We had 14 cousins, four sets of aunts and uncles, and my grandfather and grandmother, we all went to the same church when I was growing up. My aunt was my Sunday school teacher for several years. She used to give us treats. She taught great lessons. We sang songs with her. We went to her house and did all kinds of things. I thought she was a great aunt. She was active in church ministry. Her husband was a church treasurer for many years. And at 53 years old, we had an evangelist come to our church and preach the gospel. And she realized for 53 years she'd been faking it. And she got saved. Became a different person. 53 years she thought she was saved. We thought she was saved. Wasn't there. It's easy to do, folks. We can lie to ourselves. We can fake it all we want. But if Christ is not there, it's not salvation. Jesus says, today is the day to repent. Do it zealously, quickly, earnestly, with all your heart. Give him everything. Let God teach you to hate sin as he hates it. Let God teach you to love holiness as he loves holiness. Let God give you the true riches that are only found in Christ. To clothe you in the white linen instead of that black garment that you're so proud of. Let God teach you the truth about himself and about yourself. And if we can do that, then we will be overcomers. And that's the only way. We will be given that seat on the throne of Christ with him when he rules in glory. And I hope 
All of our names are confessed by our Savior before God on the day of that final reckoning. But it's not going to be the names of those who are lukewarm. That's very clear. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's convicting, and it's hard to hear sometimes because it shakes us at our core. It disrupts our lives in what we think is okay. It challenges our thinking on many levels. And yet we say that it's truth, and so often we ignore the truth of what you're trying to tell us. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would impress upon us the truth of this word, the truth of the message that we've heard today. Lord, convict us in sin because we're all sinful. There are some here who are saved. I don't know them, but you do. And there are some who are faking it, who are those lukewarm people, not truly Christians, that you are knocking at the door. And I pray that you would help them to give in, to open the door to you, and give you control that you want. We thank you again for what you're going to do in our lives, for what you are doing in the place that you have prepared for us if we just trust you and follow you. We praise you again for your goodness, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 249 is our closing hymn. I chose this hymn because I think the message is perfect of the hymn to go with the message. Christ doesn't want you to get better to come to him, to fix all the problems before you start living for him. 